Welcome to the Successful Athletes Podcast, where we interview successful athletes to make you a faster cyclist. Today, we're joined by Lauren, uh, or forgive me, Laura Alanya from Chicago. How are you doing, Laura? I'm good. How are you, Jonathan? Great, great. Thanks for coming on here. You're actually, um, so you were referred in this case to this podcast from Trainer Road, awesome employee, one of our designers. If you've ever been on Instagram or really on any of our properties now, you've seen really like cool designs and everything else. That's all Babs. Uh, Babs is really cool and awesome. She's on our marketing design team and Babs actually is your friend. She referred you over and I'm so glad she did because today we're going to talk about how you upgraded from cat three to cat two in cyclocross, but also like your start in cyclocross. We'll, we'll talk mm -hmm. about how you got into it, how you trained, what you overcame in the training process. And then also like the racing process, um, what skills you learned that were crucial. We'll go over lots of stuff. It's going to be a cool conversation. Um, I'm excited for it. I'm so, excited too. Yeah, it'll be great. Uh, so if you are listening to this podcast right now, please, uh, you can submit your own story and I'd love to hear from you. You can do so at trainerroadcom slash podcast. There will be a link when you go there to go to the successful athletes podcast and just fill out a form and let us know how to train a road has helped you be a successful athlete. It doesn't have to be a category upgrade like this. It can be an FTP improvement. It can be just put you in a better place of training. It could be national championship, whatever it is, whatever sort of success you deem let us know. And it'd be awesome to have you on. So, uh, first things first, Laura, can you, uh, intro where you're from, then also kind of your professional and social obligations. So then we have some context into your life. Absolutely. Um, so like Jonathan said at the top, I live in Chicago. Um, I've lived here in the city for about, I don't know, maybe 10 years now, almost. Um, and I work as a project manager at Northwestern University Medical School. Um, so it's a pretty standard kind of nine to five gig. Sometimes, you know, I get a little over, especially in working from home. I get easily sucked into work <laughs> and forget what time it is. Um, but I try to keep, you know, keep the hours pretty strict. Um, in terms of social obligations, um, I think that most of my social obligations are cycling related at this point. You know, I'm sure that's a familiar story to a lot of listeners. You know, cycling kind of slowly takes over most of your life. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> um, so the biggest one outside of, you know, training, anything competitive is that I'm a ride leader at the Rafa Chicago Clubhouse. Um, oh, sweet. I'm an RCC yeah. member as well. Oh, yeah. Internet high five right there. <laughs> <laughs> I love cool. it. I mean, like, say what you will about Rafa, but like the community aspect, especially here in Chicago, is really strong. Um, and oh, it yeah. is a great way to find new people to ride with, um, to, you know, go on rides, different routes you have never been on and things like that. Um, so in, in non-COVID times, normally I'm leading rides from there. Um, at least once a month. Um, and in the summer, it's more like every other week or even every weekend. Got it. So in that case, you're, you're in a spot right now where a lot of your life gets wrapped up into the bike, but it wasn't that way always for you. In fact, even I would say probably what five, six years ago is when you really started to get into this, what mm -hmm. got you into cycling, um, in the first place? Yeah. Um, I'm a bit of a newer writer, all things considered. Um, you know, like I, I was listening recently to the interview you had with, um, Lydia, the the woman yeah. from England on this yes. um, successful athlete podcast and just hearing her talking about, you know, the decades she spent as an athlete. It's so amazing and inspirational yeah. um, because I started cycling more seriously probably six years ago. Um, mm -hmm. 
my boyfriend at the time was kind of getting more seriously into it and convinced me to get a road bike. (laughs) (laughs) I actually was very reluctant because, I mean, I hadn't ridden a bike in probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years at that point, like since I was a kid. Um, I had never ridden on the road with traffic. I was very, very afraid to do that. Um, and I found it really intimidating at first, um, especially, you Rightf- know, rightfully so, by the way, like, yeah. like riding on the roads, terrifying period. But then when you're in a place like Chicago with, you know, big city traffic, everything else like that, it's even more exactly. so. Exactly. Yeah. And we we're lucky in that we have a lot of bike lanes and, um, trails off road, but you know, they're not all connected in a very effective way. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I first started out cycling, I would, you don't take side streets in a very meandering way to get to a path that wasn't that crowded because a lot of the paths here are, you know, too crowded to be comfortable cycling at any speed. Um, and then just go up and down that a bunch of times until I got more comfortable <laughs> riding on the road with traffic. <laughs> yeah. And the great irony of like my origin story in cycling is that um, the guy who got me into it uh, I quickly became much more passionate about cycling than he was. And he was kind of always very grumpy about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's cool. That's like the, that's funny though, because I've heard that story before with a lot of cyclists where they get introduced to it from a partner or a friend or something like coworker or something like that. And they end up being the ones that go, you know, he, you know, really head first into it. I, that's my origin mm-hmm. story really as well. Like good friend that got me into riding he was really, you know, he was serious and into it and everything else, but clearly I've taken things very seriously. <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah, it's just how it goes. I'm grateful to them though, for starting us off just the same. Uh, so mm-hmm. when you first started off, uh, when were you familiar with the concept of racing and cyclocross and everything else, or was it more just cycling for cycling's sake? Definitely cycling for cycling's sake. Like, um, I, did not follow any pro cycling at all. None. Like mm-hmm. I had like heard of the tour de France, maybe, you know, like that mm-hmm. level of knowledge, um, had never heard of cyclocross at all. I had no idea what it was. Um, so super, super beginner, um, level. Um, and then I started kind of getting more tapped into the community when I went, I started going on a women's group ride, um, out of one of the local bike shops here. And that kind of, you know, allowed me to make some friends and like learn how to do group riding and then kind of, you know, the rest is history. That's cool. Yeah. The the finding that group that you need to be with is super key. And like these days it is, if you live in a big city here in the United States and most big cities, really the largest ones, they have things like the Rafa cycle club and stuff like that that are uh, super welcoming, actually. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, most local shops too, they'll, they'll be able to point you in the right way to get you connected with a local group ride, anything like that. In particular too, it's, um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to understand it because it is such a, like, it's a traditionally male dominated sport too, but mm-hmm. it's gotta be really important to find people that also ride in the same lane, so to speak, as you have a similar experience and, and are able to do that. That's a, that's a, uh, a big thing. Pretty cool that you get to do that now and kind of like return that favor at, at RCC. Yeah. That's cool. That's honestly the thing I like most about it is, you know, like thinking about the way I felt about cycling, um, when I was a beginner and, you know, just how, I mean, it's frankly very intimidating, um, for everybody and, you know, being a woman coming into this very male dominated space, especially. So being able to like, 
welcome people into that and like make them feel comfortable and encourage them is really, really awesome. Yeah. Something that like a little thing that all of us can do that can go a long way. And if we can't comprehend another person's situation, hopefully we can at least comprehend our situation at an earlier time. Right. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and help that way. So let's uh, talk cyclocross. At what point did you hear about cyclocross? Cause I know from talking to Babs, uh, that are, are awesome employee here that, that Chicago has a great cyclocross scene there. Uh, yeah. how'd you get introduced to it? Um, so the friends that I made from the very beginning in this, um, women's group ride that I started going on, a few of them, um, were newer to cycling as well, but we kind of, you know, grew at the same rate and they were interested in cyclocross, um, just from, you know, having friends that did it or, you know, partners that did it, that kind of thing. So I think I spent like almost an entire season just like going with one of my friends <laughs> to the races and just spectating. Um, I remember the first one I went to, to see her race, my friend, Chris, I was just like, what is this crazy sport? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's people jumping off their bikes. Like <laughs> I had no idea. I, I had, was very surprised. Cause I guess I didn't really know what to expect, but that it was not what I expected. Um, maybe I was picturing road racing or crits or something like that when I thought of bike races before. Yeah. Talk about a totally different environment when you go to see a cyclocross race versus like a road race or even like a crit, you know, there, if you go to like USA crits level, that's very different, you know, but, um, mm -hmm. just a local business park crit or something doesn't quite have the atmosphere of a cyclocross race. <laughs> right. So yeah. you, you were, you were a spectator for, for a year. And, and mm -hmm. that in and of itself, I'm sure getting used to the culture and I'm sure you enjoyed it if you kept going for a year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a lot of fun. And um, I was like, well, I'm not doing it on Sundays. I might as well just go like hang out, meet people, <laughs> drink some beer, you know, the usual yeah. cyclocross stuff. Um, <laughs> and I finally, I found a used cross bike that was my size, which is so hard. I'm trying to find very tiny bikes <laughs> as a short woman. Um and finally, I lucked into one right at the end of a season. And I was like so in like shy and not confident in my own skills or ability that I like took the bike to a race, did not race, just like kind of pre-wrote the course and then was like, oh, I'm too scared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I mean is understandable too. Like that's the, it's, it's super intimidating to, especially with cyclocross because of the skill level involved too. Like, mm -hmm. um, you can kind of, if you're familiar with group riding, you can kind of get by in a road race and, and kind of get your feet wet, but actually be in the race. But cyclocross feels like you gotta be ready to go <laughs> like hard from the gun and deal with all the technicality and everything else. If you don't mind, like a quick deviation from this, I'd like to talk about your bike in particular, or the, sure. the size that you ride and your height, because yeah. we might be able to get some good insights for somebody on that. So Absolutely. how tall are you and what size do you ride? Uh, I'm five one. Mm -hmm. Um, so my first cross bike was, um, an extra small, uh, live. Um, which, uh, fit me quite well. And now I ride a super X and it is a 48. Okay. So that puts you right around like a hundred and just under 155 centimeters, uh, mm -hmm. for those that are, uh, listening from across the pond or in other areas there. Um, 
So that's, that's gotta be really tough because not only do they not make, you know, it's hard to find bikes at that level, but then there's a whole host of other things too, because geometry on those bikes can be pretty mm -hmm. hard to match because they're short, but sometimes they're long and stem right. lengths. And so did you have, did you find that you had to like change your bike around to fit you over to over the years now? Have you gone to shorter or longer stems or made any key changes like that? Yeah, I've definitely made a lot of progress in understanding the best way to have the bike fit me. Um, and my first, I mean, I, I feel like I know so much more now about bike fit. Like my first road bike had just awful toe overlap. So terrible. Like the mm -hmm. wheels were clearly the geometry of the wheels and the frame were not like, it wasn't taken into account that mm -hmm. the geometry would change when the frame was just trunk smaller. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I definitely almost, or probably did fall over a bunch of times just from toe overlap on that bike, which is not great. Yeah. Um, I did, um, when I got my uh, newer road bike, splurged and got a bike fit from a shop um, in the suburbs here in Chicago. Um, and that helped a lot um, in terms mm -hmm. of like um, foot position. And I definitely got a shorter stem because I was, you know, way too stretched out <laughs> on the bike. Sure. <laughs> um, but it definitely, I mean, it's hard because everybody's so different. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I have friends who are not much taller than me, but their legs are much longer proportionally. And so then you get a totally different, um, set of bike fit and geometry issues. Yeah. Getting a, getting a bike fit is huge, huge, um, thing to improve how you feel on a bike. I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm super spoiled in the sense that I'm very average. Like I'm a very average, like <laughs> average shaped person that rides bikes. So I've never, I haven't had to go through that chasing aspect of finding the, the exactly right stem. And even though I'm very, I'm fussy famously. So with my fits and everything <laughs> else, I, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that I get to, to not have to chase that. So that's, so if somebody finds themselves in this sort of situation, or even if you haven't considered it, um, think about it. Like think if you are comfortable, even like if you see pictures of yourself then look at pictures of somebody else and say, see if like you're really stretched out compared to them or something else, those can be like good indicators that you need to, to change that up. A, a weird question that's specific to cyclocross and small bikes. Mm -hmm. it, do you have difficulty shouldering your bike? Because in many cases, like uh, a lot of bikes when they get smaller, they make sloping top tubes on them. And then that front mm -hmm. triangle, like the, the negative space in the front triangle is really small. So it's yeah. kind of hard to shoulder your bike. Do you, do you face that issue at all? Um, n I would say no. I think that both the bike, both the cross bikes I've raced on considerably the live Brava and now the super X that I ride are pretty good in terms of shoulder ability. Um, but that being said, like, some barriers are really hard to get over as a small person. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, now I see like, you know, you see our races, there seems to be a trend of making them kind of smaller, shorter so that they're more hoppable, which is God pleasing. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that we usually have at our local scene here in Chicago are, are quite tall and it's hard to shoulder a bike and hop over it as a person who like it's, you know, knee height or above basically. Yeah. Seeing an, an athlete like Matthew Vanderpool, they like go up to halfway up his shin, you know, he's right. such a tall, tall exactly. athlete. It's very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's I'm a like, good that's point. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> have you done anything like, uh, have you had to work on barriers? Do you feel like, um, proportionately more than others as a result of that? And have you, 
what's like a, what's been the process like of figuring out barriers for you? Um, it has been a long process. Um, I, <laughs> I went through this phase, like when I was like a medium cat four, where I, um, thought that I came up with a million dollar idea of like, kind of like stepping on the top of the barrier and then like, you know, like launching myself off instead of jumping over it, um, yeah. which works out really well until the barrier is wet and then you just kind of fight oh. it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I, as soon as you said that, I, I pictured it. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It didn't get hurt, but it was embarrassing. And obviously it makes you much slower when you fall down. Um, right. So just having to practice and like really the thing that has helped the most, I think was practicing dismounting and remounting quite quickly because um, if you can do that as fast as possible, then it saves a lot of time um, compared to, you know, if you're awkwardly futzing with the remount. And that just comes with practice, right? I assume just yeah. with reps, you got more comfortable mm -hmm. to jump on faster and jump off faster. Yeah, it's just muscle memory. Yeah. Yeah. Something else I'm thinking about right now is even in some cases with tall barriers, even, you know, I'm, I'm about five, 10, five, 11. And when I shoulder my bike and I jump over something at times, I've even had though my front end, if I'm dropping the front end down too far, my front end bump a barrier. So you've really got to, I'm sure make a conscious effort mm -hmm. to lift your bike really high when you go over yeah, barriers. Absolutely. And especially the rear wheel I've caught a bunch of times as well. Um, when yeah. I think I've made cleared everything and I didn't, um, but I think that that's also kind of a practice over time thing. And if, you know, if you're part of like a local scene, like we have here in Chicago, the same barriers make an appearance at every race. So mm -hmm. you kind of, you know, get a feel for the effort it takes to jump over them, you know, how high the bike has to be, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And definitely I'm shouldering for our barriers. You know, when I go to races that are shorter ones, I might do like a suitcase carry instead. It's a lot easier than shouldering it. Sure. Yeah, that's another point that you brought up. There's the fact that even though your bike shrinks in height, your bike doesn't really shrink that much in length. So that's a really good point that when you're jumping over your back end, still trailing behind you <laughs> much like it is for somebody else, but it's just lower to the ground. So yeah. things that we don't think about, right. Um, when you put, <laughs> it's just like Nate, uh, famously on the ask a cycling coach podcast, our CEO here at trainer road, he's, you know, he's really tall, six, six. So and he has a whole different host of problems. He can never find bikes that fit because he's just a bunch of legs, you know, really <laughs> long legs. And it's so, but it's always a, an interesting point. And I bring this up because it's probably worth all of us always re-examining how's our bike fitting us. And are there small things that maybe we could test or try to be able to change things? Cause it's crazy how much easier it can make things. Um, right. And having so. it on a trainer is the easiest way to make adjustments and kind of feel for them. I mean, cause mm -hmm. you can do, you know, one hour ride the next day, move your saddle forward a couple centimeters, do another hour which one feels better, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Right. Um, it's like going to a bike fit studio, <laughs> just, you get to experiment instead of rely on somebody's knowledge. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, with this, uh, a question that I have with the racing side of things, um, when you started with cyclocross, it sounded like it was like, uh, you've, you started to enjoy the scene and cyclocross itself. But when you mm -hmm. started racing, what was the motivation? Was it curiosity or did you have some sort of greater goal? Like, like really when you get down to it, why were you racing cyclocross? Why'd you make that decision? 
That's a good question. Um, Cause I, I don't think I had a specific goal in mind. I wasn't like, you know, I'm going to cat up real fast and get really good or anything like that. Um, I think in the beginning it was mostly curiosity. Um, and then definitely it's one of those events. And I feel like people experience this a lot in cycling where, you know, I did it and I was just like, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And when can I do it again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. We're already, yeah. it's, it's terrible and painful and hurtful. And then after that, we're already thinking about when we're going to do it next. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. because I mean, the competitive aspect is fun and was something new to me, but, but I, I do love the technicality of cyclocross as well. Like yeah. I love slopping around in the mud and trying to find the best line and all that. I get, a, I get a lot out of it. So before we're going to talk a lot about your training and how you train through this whole thing, but I, I want to just run with that right there and talk about the skills side of things, because that's one thing that's like both a plus and minus for beginners with cyclocross in the sense that plus, because you can fall and it doesn't hurt like a road race. Uh, you can fall over and it's probably on grass or maybe sand, something like that. And it can really help get you over that fear. You can also like build that relationship with traction that you just never get to build on the road because if you've lost traction on the road, you're already fall you're down on the ground, Right. <laughs> uh, but with cyclocross, you can lose traction and, and be okay. Um, but with that, how did you build those skills to be able to ride in? I'm sure inclement weather conditions there with Chicago. So whether it was snow, rain or mud, mm -hmm. how did you go about getting better at that? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think early in my race experience, um, a lot of it was either like being strategic. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you're more in the lower categories, more of a beginner, often it will be faster to run certain areas than it will be to ride it or people attempt to ride it and then they fall off. So you're just better dismounting and running the whole section. So using that type of strategy and just being like, okay, like I'm not even going to try to run through or to ride through that sand pit. Cause I know I'm going to fall down mm. as a beginner and instead just dismount right at the beginning and make a running sprint for it. Then you end up passing a lot of other racers who are trying. Um, yeah. that, that also <laughs> probably lets you focus on other aspects of the course that are probably closer within range for you to be able to accomplish. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also like doing a lot of training just to increase your strength and power helps a lot too in the beginning, because, you know, like it, if you don't have a lot of cornering ability, you have to slow down a lot when you go through the corners, if you can power out of it with a lot of Watts, then I mean, you're still doing pretty well. All that being said, like in cat two, none of this is <laughs> relevant anymore. <laughs> so I'm, I have like, you know, totally changed my, um, training focuses, I guess. Yeah. I mean, still doing like consistent training in terms of power and things like that, but also, you know, going to the park and practicing cornering, um, trying to learn how to bunny hop stuff, which I'm not there yet. I've yeah. crunched a bottle a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best place to start though. A whole exactly. lot better than a board. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, just riding on a lot of sand. I live right by Lake Michigan, so there's plenty of oh. sand to be had. Um, so just trying to work on those skills to be able to, um, you know, 
stay on the bike through different elements and keep the speed up. Yeah. Uh, it, were there any breakthroughs that you had? And this is tough because I'm asking you to call through the whole, you know, log of memories that you have with this, but were there any technical breakthroughs that you had where, whether it was sand, mud, or maybe some, so something with barriers, like the a great one that you mentioned there was just deciding if it was something you were going to do or not and sticking to that before the race. Mm. Or were there any other like, uh, breakthroughs or key points that you really held on to that you found helpful, technically speaking? Yeah, I think there's a few things, um, in terms of sand, um, I mean, it, it always, with everything in cyclocross, it helps to find a line that works, um, mm -hmm. regardless of whether mud, sand, snow, anything. Mm -hmm. um, but for sand in particular, um, I, I really love sand, actually, um, even though it is like just soul-suckingly hard <laughs> to ride through most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a couple years ago, I got a fat bike, Um for the winter and it's just the best it's amazing um and that kind of gave me some intuition into like what sand is like because it it does behave a lot like snow or ice you know if you watch riders front tires as they go through sand the tires just kind of like everywhere mm -hmm. so often what i'll do is like kind of keep my weight back and let the bike go where it wants to within reason but not try to force it um, because mm -hmm. I think if you try to force it and, you know, like try to steer really aggressively, like you're going to fall over or just run into like a thick pile that you can't get through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. I've noticed that too. That's, that's um, probably like sand tip number one, right. Is, and it's kind of weird because you get uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable in the sense mm -hmm. that it's kind of like, you just kind of have to let the bike wander and wiggle its way through, but that keeping the weight back and keeping the power down and yeah, it just kind of exactly. go crazy. Just kind of like letting the bike be in control of you instead of the other way around, which is tough. I mean, to yeah. sit back and do that. But definitely a few times I've ridden on, you know, like with my, obviously a fat bike, you know, you can get a lot more traction and ride more effectively on sand or snow. But there's been a few times when I'd ride, you know, on un ungroomed trails or just, you know, when it freshly snowed out here and <laughs> the bike just goes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That skill comes in handy. That's a great sand tip. Um, is there anything, anything else that's say, and that one transcends also sand to mud and other things too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anything else that stood out for you before we move on to the training side of things? Um, I, I think paying attention to where your weight is, is really important. Um, and you know, not just for cornering, but if, you know, you look at a cross course, there's often kind of like slippery, steep inclines to climb up like real short, punchy things. Um, and just keeping your weight, you know, back, um, so that you don't lose traction on things like that. Cause that can spell disaster. Um, um, and yeah, going through slippery turns and stuff, there's just a whole, um, calculus that you have to do of thinking about where can I put my weight on the bike or, you know, even off the bike to keep myself the most stable with the most traction. Yeah. And in the turns, right. It's so count it, once again, it's a counterintuitive thing, like just like mm -hmm. the sand that we don't want to weight the front end because that means that we go like put our body further toward 
perceived danger being the ground. Uh, but mm -hmm. that's the very thing that helps keep us upright is if we, our weight goes forward onto that front wheel in those turns. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's something I'm definitely still working on. Like, I, I think that one of my goals before next season, if next season happens, when it happens, um, I really want to work on cornering a lot and, you know, ha have the, the whole like mental calculus of where should my weight be just kind of be second nature. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's so funny now that you mentioned this, I feel like what bike handling is, is just overcoming our natural reactions. That's kind of, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and rewriting kind of that patterning that's in our subconscious with all that stuff. Um, let's talk about, uh, and actually before we get into training, you, you, you spectated slash heckled for a year. Um, mm -hmm. so I want to get heckling tips. I know this is kind of a bit of an aside, <laughs> but as a cyclist now, or as a cyclocross racer now, but then also mm -hmm. as a, as a, as a year long heckler, um, what tips do you have for effective heckling? Cause, and I say effective uh, intentionally because there's like, sometimes like I hear some people heckling and they're just downright mean. Um, yeah. other times I've, I hear heckling and it's, and it's, and it's funny and it, but it's still encouraging, um, or it's supportive, anything else like there, there's kind of like a broad spectrum it can run, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, pro tips for hecklers. It could even be objects to bring to make noise or do anything else like that. Oh, this is good. I love this. Um, cause <laughs> one of my favorite things is like staying in, I, no, I honestly, like maybe I'm not the best person to ask about this. Cause I, I don't really like heckle much, but I love giving hand ups. Yes. Hand up. <laughs> and like, if any of your listeners have, are people in Chicago or have been to a race here, like the hand up scene is very strong. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> There's always just like a variety of, you know, candy, foods, drinks, um, bottles of whipped cream shooting into people's mouths, like <laughs> dollar bills, it, it, you name it, like it's there. There was a, a pinata at a number of races last year. <laughs> that's an awesome <laughs> idea the riders just ride through it instead of hitting it with a with a stick or something right well, like some, one of the spectators would position herself you know kind of 10 feet prior to the pinata and then everyone would yell at the rider coming through to take the stick <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's and an make awesome them hit idea. the pinata as they rode by <laughs> oh man that's awesome yeah cyclocross is great for this reason yeah. right there yeah. yeah, it's fun. It's, it's such like a counter experience to the, to the serious tone that a lot of the time that we take with our training and with everything else, it's fun to be able to have a more relaxed atmosphere when we execute, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so let's, let's talk about the training side of things. Uh, so starting out, when did you start with trainer road and structured training? Mm -hmm. And let's talk about the start before we talk about what plans you followed and everything else. Yeah. Um, I have been using trainer road a long time. I mean, probably at least four years. I was trying to look back in my um, history, but I think it only goes back to 2017. And I definitely started before that because what prompted me to start Trainer Road was um, I got a bad road crash um, about five years ago and broke my collarbone, mm. which is a common story in cycling. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> I think it's one of the most common bones for us to break. Um and luckily, like, you know, I was unhurt otherwise, but it was in September and it was like right at the beginning of what was going to be my first cyclocross race season. Mm. Um, so it was a huge bummer. I was so disappointed. Um, and 
I was really, you know, amped up about, oh my God, I'm going to lose all my fitness that I built in the past Mm -hmm. one year. (laughs) 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 Um, And I had a trainer, but I had never really like ridden it that much because I I didn't really like get it, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have any experience with training of any kind. So I would kind of get on the trainer and pedal for a while and then be like, I don't know if this is doing anything. Yeah. Um, but then a friend recommended trainer road to me and, you know, with a broken collarbone, you can't really put any weight on this arm, but I realized I could kind of sit up on my bike or just put the one arm down. So I started using trainer road as a way to maintain fitness, um, while I couldn't really ride otherwise. Um, no outdoor riding, obviously. And that was it for like three months, probably. So when did you get to the point where you were using it to like, and you to really get faster or like for goals of racing cyclocross? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I kind of, you know, um, got bit by the trainer road bug pretty quickly. I was like, yeah. Oh, like, this is cool. You know, like coach Shad just tells me what to do. And then I do it. <laughs> like, I don't need to know anything about training. I don't need to research anything. Like it just happens. Hmm. Um, so I kept with it all through that winter. Um, and then when I started, you know, group rides kind of resume more in the springtime, um, around here. And, I was like, whoa, like, I feel like I'm way faster than I was before. And <laughs> I've just been riding inside this whole time. <laughs> so Heck then yeah. it kind of, yeah, it like really clicked for me. Um, the, you know, the impact that it could have doing just even three hours a week or whatever, low volume plan. Um, and just being able to like keep up with my friends better, like go on co-ed rides that I previously thought like, you know, I was too slow to go on um, and being able to not get dropped. Do you remember the sort of FTP improvements like uh, from where you started to perhaps even like where you are now or uh, throughout that period of time when you were training for cyclocross initially? What sort of improvement did you see in terms of numbers? I wish I remembered that. Um and I, in the beginning, I had a, um, you know, a dumb trainer. Um, mm-hmm. So I was like looking at my FTP history to try to, you know, answer this question. Sure, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I thought yeah. it might come up. Um, <laughs> and I know that when I got my current trainer, which is a smart trainer, um, my FTP decreased a lot because I think that like the trainer difference going from virtual power to you know, an actual power meter in there. Sure. Huge difference. But since I have gotten the smart trainer, um, which was in t- spring 2018, I think, mm-hmm. um, my FTP has gone from 150-ish to 190. Way to go. That's awesome. Thanks. Huge improvement. Uh, the, and the, you have, the point you bring up about virtual power is a really interesting one. Like you're, even though, uh, because virtual power is an estimation of what your power might be. So even though it may not be accurate to a power meter, it's still precise. And that's like the key, right? It's precise mm-hmm. from day to day. So you still right. got the value of the training and everything else, but it's so cool to have a power meter, uh, even if it's, you know, built into the smart trainer like this to then get that data. So that, that's a, that's a significant improvement. Um, what, what sort of, uh, like, how did you fit the training in? We talked about your career being more or less a nine to five. And of mm-hmm. course this year has been odd scheduling with COVID happening and everything else. But what was it like for you to, or when did you fit it in? Was it lunch times mm. before, after? 
It can be really tough, I will say. Um, even even though like I I do only work nine to five consistently, and I I don't have any kids, um, and I know that's a, a really tough thing to schedule for people with families. Um, so even without those constraints, it can be hard. Um, just because previously, you know, when I was going to an office, I can't do it at lunchtime. Um, and I don't really like to do it before work because I've always lived in a situation where I have downstairs neighbor, not yeah. sure they would love to hear the <laughs> trainer going or the fan at least blasting me at, you know, 6am or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that really limits options to, you know, I, I try to hop on the trainer as soon as work's over. So between five and six, um, and then sometimes on weekends, but previously before pandemic, I would, I was sticking to the low volume plan, do it during the week. And then on the weekend, I would do, you know, one or two kind of social rides, fun rides, um, or do like a Saturday skills practice, Sunday group ride kind of situation. It's like a perfect way to do it because you still get in your structure. And then really with every discipline, but in particular cyclocross because of the technical demand and everything else, then your, your duties that you have to the Rafa cycle club and everything there too, you know, you're, you're, you're helping out with all that. So that's the, and I, we recommend that for almost everybody in that I speak to personally, whenever they ask which plans or what should I start out with? I'm almost always at telling them pick a low volume plan. It's great. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can get so much for so little, it's really high quality training, and then you still get to be able to enjoy riding the bike uh, without structure, work on skills, uh, ride with friends, all that stuff. Super cool. Yeah, uh, what, I totally agree. What did you find difficult with the training process? Like uh, things we probably take for granted now and we just mm -hmm. assume it's part of it, but whether it was like uh, not having a good enough fan or whether it was uh, fueling, I don't know. Mm -hmm. what, what did you find difficult with the training process once you really get locked into that day-to-day -day routine going through for months. Yeah. I, th I think there's a couple of things. One of the fueling is like has been continues to be, you know, uh, uh, something to focus on. Um, because when I started cycling, I was not really doing much in terms of intense exercise at all. Um, so going from that to endurance athlete really, I mean, you have to, change your nutrition, your whole diet dramatically. Um, I spent a while when I first started cycling being like, Oh my God, like, I feel like garbage. Like, why am I so tired all the time? Um, and I, I downloaded one of those, you know, diet tracking apps for a while. Cause I thought I wasn't getting enough, um, protein because, you know, mm -hmm. people are always talking about protein. Um, I wasn't getting enough carbs. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. So then I started, you know, like really focusing on like fueling instead of just eating and, uh, totally made a huge difference. That's like the, uh, wh whatever sort of, you know, when you look at it in, from a macro perspective, um, it can be common for people to lack protein, but there's a lot of social pressure around like forcing you into not having enough carbs on board. And it's because we, we have this big assumption that like, well, carbs make us fat, 
So then we don't want to eat carbs. And then on top of that layering, there's social norms that exist that are incorrect that put even more pressure on women in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and athletes with any sort of uh, body image thing that's exposed, which cyclists get to wear tight Lycra. So, <laughs> you know, they have that on top of there. It's, it's really, there's just a lot of layers to it. But that's such a good point that like, if, if you are lacking that, that's one of the reasons why you measure that stuff. You don't have to measure it every day, but like check in and see where you're at because, uh, and, and also like the whole assumption around carbs that, that, that being bad for you, making you fat, everything else like that. It's, it's so unhealthy. Like yeah. you shouldn't be looking for the minimum effective dose of carbohydrate, right? Like exactly. how did your training change after you started adding in more carbohydrate? Um, I mean, I, Number one, I felt better all around, just mm. off the bike. Um, felt like I had more energy in life, and I felt like I was able to do the workouts better. You know, like um, not uh, have to decrease the intensity as often, or you know, pause it during an interval, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> yeah. So it really helped. Yeah. It, that's a, another point to it too, is that it's not just the time on the bike, but it makes everything else better too. Um, Absolutely. cognition outside of it, uh, mood, there's tons of different things that, that can contribute to it. So mm-hmm. if you're listening to this right now and uh, check on that, see where you're at. And then also, uh, don't feel bad for fueling your work. Uh, that's a positive relationship that you can have and it can enable you to be really impressed with what your body can do, uh, when you can do that. It's pretty awesome. So yeah, I, th- I so feel true. like it's cheating. Um, quick aside, I know this is all <laughs> about you, but I went on a ride this week with some pro cyclists and I was not prepared for it. And I was, I've, I've been in a big fitness hole because I was sick for a while and I totally cheated that whole ride because I just ate so many carbs. <laughs> like I took in like 120 grams of carbs an hour. And as a result, I was like, I'm feeling fine. Like, I don't know how I'm doing this, but I'm able to get through it. So, uh, so do that. If you're ever really nervous, just double down on carbs. It'll help. So it makes a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. It, even <laughs> for short disciplines, like cyclocross, a lot of people are like, Oh, I don't need to worry about that. Like it's still, you're asking your body to do something really, really hard. Like it mm-hmm. needs fast energy and it needs to be trained to be able to use that energy. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, some other questions that I have with this too. Um, did you ever find yourself having to, oh, so I know that the answer is yes to this cause you're a normal human, but <laughs> when you missed workouts, how did you adjust for that? Like logistically in terms of like, how would you change the subsequent workouts? Mm-hmm. But then also, how would you manage that internally? Because that can be really hard for us when we miss a workout and sometimes it snowballs and we miss another yeah. workout. It's so hard. Um, I mean, logistically, I, I think that there's a lot of tools to help you um, adjust for it. Like one is like planning ahead and kind of like, you know, using the calendar and trainer road to move the workouts around. Um, I do that all the time. Um, the other thing I have like been doing, and I think I only discovered this like in the past year, maybe, I don't know why I haven't noticed this before, but, um, so if the low volume plan is like two, one hour workouts and then a one hour and a half workout, and I have to miss one of the one hours, I will just change one of those workouts to plus two or whatever it is mm-hmm. to kind of make up a little bit of time the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at the workout variants that are available and if you have extra time one day to make up some of that workout time that you missed. Ooh, that's a pro tip. I like that one. The workout <laughs> variants you can always, and that's one thing too, uh, when you, 
like it's don't let good be the enemy of great, right? When mm-hmm. you don't have time to do the full workout that you had planned, maybe look to see if there's a shorter one that you can do. Or like exactly. you said, great option of the next time, just see if you can add on a bit more, right? Like Yeah, right. Yeah. It, it's what pretty about, flexible in that respect, which is awesome. Yeah. What about internally? How do you manage oh. that? The, the internally is so hard. Frustration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I actually just went through this this week because I I did like a an e-race on the trainer on Saturday, which I hadn't really been planning on, but it, one of the teams nearby was doing this thing. So to support them, I want to do it. Mm. Then Sunday, I went on a long ride with my partner outside, like a three-hour thing. And then Monday, I was like, I'm going to do this hard workout, and it's going to be great. And um, my body was like, no, you're you're not, though. (laughs) 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 So I felt like garbage, and I kept having to pause it and, like, kind of catch my breath and, um, like, super frustrated quit. And, like, I was super grumpy about it. And then I was like, you know what, Laura, like if, if you had a friend who was doing the same thing, you would be like ending one workout early and taking a rest day tomorrow is not going to destroy all the fitness you've accrued in your life. In fact, it will probably help you to take a day rest tomorrow because your body's trying to tell you it needs rest by Mm. making you fail this workout. (laughs) That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it like, you know, what would I tell somebody else who was just in the same position? Because we're all our bo- our best self-critics, you know, um, just constantly telling ourselves like, oh, like, you know, if you don't do this one workout, then you're never going to get on the podium or, you know, you're never going to do your event the way you want to. Um, but if it was your friend, you would never say that to them. I hope not, at least. Yeah. So <laughs> if you do, you might not be friends. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I just try to turn that around and like think uh, think outside of myself a little bit and be kinder. Awesome. That's a great tip. Um, be a friend to yourself and and all adopt that other perspective. Let's get into the racing side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh I, so you ended up, uh, you were, you started in cat three and you mentioned this actually originally that you never thought that you would really like, or you never really started this thing to be like, I was going to race my way through the categories. Uh, but you have earned your cat two upgrade. Mm-hmm. So, which is super cool. And congratulations on that. Um, that's awesome. Thanks. Um, I want to talk about how the racing has changed from cat three to cat two. What's different now? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, I well, I started in cat four. Actually, yeah, that's true. A couple four, years ago, and then working. Yeah, out. I yeah. spent two years in three. I catted up. Um, but yeah, to your question, I definitely think that the gap between three and two is pretty intense. Um, mm-hmm. In a way that you you can't like I, I think I said this a little bit earlier. Like you can't just use strength or fitness to overcome any kind of shortcomings you have in other areas, whether it's like Mm -hmm. skills or, you know, like choosing the right line or anything like that. Like just because you're super strong, like you probably can't make up for not doing skills practice. Um, So I definitely think to be able to compete at this level, especially if you're going to bigger, you know, like regional UCI races, um, it's a lot more than just fitness and training like that. Yeah. This is a good point where you start to bring up, uh, the point of strengths, weaknesses, and limiters. 
in the sense that no matter how strong your strengths are, if a weakness is an actual limiter, then you're held back by it. Right. And, mm -hmm. and the higher level of competition will bring that to the forefront. <laughs> um, right. Absolutely. What sort of limiters did you notice that you had to work on? Um, definitely cornering. Um, I think that, you know, I, I slow down more than I would like in corners. Um, just don't have as much confidence doing it as I would like to, to be able to compete. Um, and I, there's like a, a, some kind of less common features that I've encountered outside of the local scene here. Like last year, I, um, was lucky enough to travel to uh, Massachusetts and I did two races in Northampton, which was amazing. Um, but also so hard and so intense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got my butt kicked there. <laughs> um, and I mean, there's like, it was very kind of like tree rooty area mm. that we were riding through and I was like, oh my God, I have never encountered this before. I'm going to slip on a tree root and bash myself. Um, and just like areas that have more um, topography. Uh, there's not much of that here in Chicago. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> we do like the race organizers are great and they do what they can to make the local courses great. Um, but I, I mean, out of state, I've seen some, you know, like really intense descents that I don't know, maybe if you mountain bike a lot, that would be totally cool, but I might like heart will jump into my mouth, you know, <laughs> Sure, right. <laughs> all of a sudden you're riding off a cliff. Yeah. Um, so just like being able to find ways to practice things like that and become more comfortable, um, with, you know, all the things that cyclocross can throw at you. Looking back at your time in Cat 3, what made you successful enough to upgrade to Cat 2? Like, what, what were the key things that you did that were helpful and set you apart? Good question. Because um, I think the first year I was in Cat 3, you know, I, I didn't really have a lot of expectations of myself. I was kind of like, ah, Cat 3, going to be here forever. It'll be great. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I never really like saw myself as being able to compete with the amazing women that I saw racing in one and two every weekend. Um, mm. But I think the thing, probably the few things that um, helped me were um, riding, not just racing, but riding with people who are stronger than me. Mm. Um, I think that if you only ride or race with people who you know you can keep up with or who you know you can beat, you are never going to get faster or um, have better race results. Um, so just like trying to challenge myself all the time um, really pushed me to get better, I think. Awesome. That's a great tip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And probably, um, uh, I started doing more strength training, which I think helps a lot too. Oh, cool. You know, like kind of core workouts and things like that. Um, you know, getting back to shouldering the bike, you, you do need some stuff going on up here to be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The core work is so important for cyclocross too, because it, um, it's a cyclocross course is usually trying to constantly throw you off, uh, that ideal position, whether it's mm -hmm. because you're turning, whether it's because it's bumpy or any number of things, slippery, so having a core that can 
be strong. And then also when you do core work, the thing that a lot of people don't talk about is you build a lot of neuromuscular connections, like in kind of like a uh, level of proprioception with your body that allows you to separate movements and still have control. And that's like, if you look at cyclocross, it's always amazing to see the best athletes, like when they dismount and remount and how smooth they are when they are able to, and it just, it's, it's very smooth yeah, and, and that sort incredible. of smoothness equals efficiency and efficiency equals more energy, more speed, everything else. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. At this point, Great. it's all about racing smarter, not harder. So, you know, mm. picking the best lines, you know, knowing where to put your weight, um, being aware of your positioning on the bike, things like that. How do you pace a race, a cyclocross race? That's always a tricky one because we've talked to a lot of pros that are like, uh, it's actually way more st steady power than you think. And it's like, I don't know how you're doing steady power. Cause I feel like I'm dying out there, like <laughs> going way up and down, way up and down the whole time. Uh, but they're able to do that. Um, do you intentionally have like a pacing plan that you utilize when you race cyclocross? like go out easy, try to smooth things out or punch and use that to your advantage? What, what do you do? Um, that's a great question. And I, I think this is probably, you know, individual for each person. Um, but for, for me specifically, um, I, I always pay really close attention to pre-ride of the course um, because I think that my strategy is course dependent. Um, I mean, everybody's going to go hard for the first you know, the start. And then after that, you know, I try to look at like, which features do I think that I might be able to overtake some people, other racers, um, and then like, you know, save up some power to really push there. Or where do I think I can kind of just hold my own, but take it down a notch and, you know, let the heart rate come down to one less than exploding. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it takes. Whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so things like that, just like playing it strategically. Cool. Awesome. Well, this has been awesome, Laura. Thank you uh, for the conversation, for allowing me to ask all these questions and go in depth. We haven't actually talked to anybody about cyclocross in specific on this podcast yet. So it's been oh. fun to talk about that and to so get fun. into it. Tis the season, even though a lot of it isn't happening for us right now because of the, the, the strange times we're in, but Hopefully yeah. it comes back and, and we'll be able to race cross again. Um, Every day right, that it's like 40 degrees and rain, I'm like, oh no, cross weather. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? That's the cross weather that we set. That's when we justify being outside in that weather. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I have saved a ton of money and, you know, bike maintenance and <laughs> True. <bike> washing. <laughs> very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Um, Laura, we'll have a forum post on this. Uh, so anybody can go on there and check out more information from this episode. Just search for Laura, Lanya, just like you're seeing on, on, on here, but what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Would it be through their Instagram, anything else? Um, the form's fine. People can get me on Instagram. Um, my username is lasagna.09. Awesome. <laughs> just yeah. like the, the last name. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Rhymes with lasagna. So that's yep. how you can find me. <laughs> cool. We'll put that down in the link below. Uh, so then people can find you, whether you're listening to this or watching it. And if you are joining us to listen to this or watch it, thank you so much. Uh, you can share this podcast with your friends. Please do so. Uh, check out trainerroad.com if you want to get fast like Laura, uh, make some awesome upgrades and do all that. It's super cool. And of course, if you also want to be on this podcast, like I said in the beginning, just go to trainerroad.com 
jamesmonroe.com slash podcast and click the successful athletes banner that's there. You'll be able to submit your story and let us know how Trainer Road made you successful. And I would love to hear that. So please do so. And we will talk to you on the next episode. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much, Jonathan.